Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your amazing grace. We're thankful for what you can do with human hearts that are yielded to your spirit. And we're thankful for the opportunity to come here in this day to hear your word, to look into your word, to set our minds on knowing thee and on worshiping thee. And we pray that you would bless and strengthen us as we seek to honor and glorify you. We pray that your word would go forth in its simplicity and its truth. And we pray that many would come to you while it is yet the day of grace. All these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So the past couple weeks, I've been uh, looking at a particular uh, passage. And it's a very familiar passage, and I was trying to remember, I'm, I'm sure someone in has probably uh, preached on it uh, not that long ago. But I wanted to turn to Luke 15 today, and I wanted to read from Jesus' uh, trilogy of how God seeks those that are lost. Luke chapter 15. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. And he spake this parable unto them, saying, What man of you, having an hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness, and go after that which is lost, until he find it? And when he hath found it, he layeth on it his shoulders rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you, that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. Either what woman, having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, doth not light a candle, and sweep the house, and seek diligently till she find it. And when she hath found it, she calleth her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I have lost. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. And he said, A certain man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me, and he divideth unto them his living. And not many days after the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat 
and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is found and they began to be merry. Now his elder son was in the field and as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry and would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. And he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. And yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad. For this thy brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found." So recently I was reading a book. It was written by a woman uh, from, uh, originally her family immigrated to the US from Southeast Asia. And if you're aware of Asian cultural norms, um, you know that uh, from a cultural perspective that there is a strong shame slash honor culture that is built, into, is built into the Asian culture. And we have examples, we have ex examples of that here in the uh, articles that you may re have read a couple years ago about the Asian tiger mothers that were uh, creating their, these, they were teaching their children to achieve and to be excellent in everything they did in learning music and in their studying their, their uh, math and their science uh, especially. And if you read any of the things that we, we uh, in, in the newspapers here about the, the different uh, conversations that are going on now here about discrimination, about there's this ongoing discussion about, well, are Asians, are Asians discriminated against uh, because they're overrepresented in some of our, our finer, finer universities, right? 
But the, uh, the shame-honor culture, you know, goes both ways, is that you can create, as a parent, you can create this, this, this system whereby your children are living to bring honor to you and to your family, and that is their focus. And if they fall short of that, then they feel this, this element of, of shame. And sometimes, you know, we see that that may lead to uh, depression or suicide. And so there's, there's a, a downside to that as well. And it so happens that, of course, in the Middle East, uh, this is also a very uh, common cultural per- perspective is the honor, uh, shame culture. And that if you look at uh, especially the, the third parable in this trilogy, you will, you will, we will explore that further, but you will, you will see uh, lots of this, uh, this shame versus honor uh, going through, running through this parable of the prodigal son. But first of all, let's go back and uh, set up, the, set up the, the context of these parables. It says that uh, then drew near to him all the publicans and sinners, probably not all, but everyone, or many, many publican sinners came to hear him. And Pharisees and scribes must also have been there because they murmured and said that this man receives sw- sinners and eats with them. And then Jesus spake these parables. So if you look at the, uh, the, par- the Pharisees and the scribes, scribe here, they're setting up this uh, shame versus honor uh, dichotomy, right? Jesus is eating with, sh- with sinners, therefore we, are, we think he should be shamed. We, as a body of the uh, Sanhedrin as a body of the, the uh, most righteous people in Israel are looking down upon Jesus because he's eating with these sinners. And again, if we look here at who these sinners are, we see publicans mentioned, tax collectors. And who, who received more shame in Israel than tax collectors? Those who were collaborating with the Roman government that was had overrun Israel, and if you, have a, if you had a Jew that was collecting taxes for them, this was a very, very shameful thing. So Jesus starts out here. Again, he seems to be focusing on mostly perhaps the, uh, the publicans and the sinners. He's not really, he doesn't really start with a really uh, a deep story but uh, with the story of a shepherd, which could be easily related to to, to most of the people in Israel. Uh, the higher class people in Israel themselves were not really the, the uh, publicans and scribes. This is probably not really a, a story perhaps that they related to or wanted to relate to very, very much because the upper class in Israel did not, uh, did not really think that highly of shepherding as a, as a profession. But Jesus tells this parable about a shepherd that had a hundred sheep, and he lost one of them. And he went and he searched for the sheep. 
So if we look at these three parables, in each one there will be an object of the search. And in each one, the person doing the searching will be a representation of, of God. And in this case, he's using the example of the shepherd, which, of course, if we go back to Psalm 23, the good shepherd, if we go to many of the prophets, uh, Ezekiel, uh, Isaiah, the use of God as a shepherd is a common metaphor in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. So in this case, the shepherd went looking for the sheep. So if you know anything about sheep, which I didn't know that mu- don't know that much about sheep, but uh, I have tried to, uh, tried to do some reading up on, on sheep, and the shepherd went looking for the sheep. If a sheep gets lost, it's really, uh, again, sheep are not thought of as very intelligent, intelligent animals. And so if a sheep gets lost, it's likely to take shelter unto, uh, behind a rock or someplace, and it's likely to, whether it's injured or not, it's not really likely to go running around trying to find its way back. It's more likely to take shelter someplace and sit there and bleed. So in this situation, the shepherd is going out and looking for the sheep. The sheep is not really actively searching for the the shepherd in most cases, and the shepherd eventually finds the sheep. Notice he left his 90 and 9 back uh, in another place. Uh, generally, if a shepherd had that many sheep, there might be a, a, second, uh, a second person there that could watch over them, but this parable does not, does not, tell, us, um, does not tell us that. But he finds the sheep. And when you find the sheep, well, what are you going to do with the sheep? You can't really... It's, it's not really that easy to herd sheep. Perhaps the sheep is, is hurt as well. What are you going to do? Uh, most likely, you know, in many artists' perceptions, you know, what you see is you see Jesus carrying the sheep over his shoulders. So whenever I think of that picture in my mind, I, I think of this little, this little lamb, you know, that maybe weighs not very much. However, in reality... A full-grown sheep is uh, around 70 pounds. So if you think about having to search through the wilderness, find a sheep, and then put this thing on your shoulders, of which it's probably not very, uh, very uh, conducive to making it stay still, or if you're trying not to hurt it, if it's already been injured, and you have to carry this back from wherever you found it, you realize that this is not an easy task. Um, at home, I've had some experience with carrying our 60-pound-plus uh, lab for short distances, and uh, let me, I, I'm older, of course, but this is, is not an easy thing to do. So when he comes back, he calls together his friends and neighbors, and he says, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost. So again, he does not keep this to himself, the fact that he found the sheep and the fact that it was only one out of the other 99. He calls together his friends and neighbors and wants them to rejoice, to be happy with him together 
Uh, perhaps it doesn't tell us here, but you know, as we look at some of the other parallels, uh, perhaps there was some more, uh, ex- some more, uh, I don't know, music and dancing or uh, uh, greater excitement or uh, food that was shared together. Um, but he doesn't tell us here, Jesus doesn't tell us here exactly what the rejoicing, uh, what the rejoicing took place in this parable. And then he makes this interesting statement that uh, likewise shall in heaven, there shall be more joy um, in heaven over one sinner that repenteth than over the ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. I'm going to let that hang for now and go on to the next parable. The next parable tells about this woman that had ten pieces of silver. And one of the problems, of course, in doing research into these things is that everybody has an opinion. Uh, Many people have strong opinions, just as we saw saw today in Bible class, uh, that we have strong differing opinions sometimes about how... how, uh, how these scriptures should be interpreted. But in this case, the woman, uh, these 10 pieces of silver, some people say that, well, the, as part of the woman's dowry, she had, a, she had a headdress that she received that had these 10 pieces of silver in. And so if she lost one of these pieces of silver, in, it was very, uh, not only from a uh, you know, financial loss, but it was also a very sentimental loss if she, she lost this and very culturally important to her to have all 10 pieces. Others say, no, it really, that really wasn't that common. Uh, people may not have, have gotten that in a dowry. Uh, others say, you know, it was, this was uh, the equivalent of a day's wage, one of these coins. And others say, well, no, maybe it was less, maybe it was only a quarter. So we don't really know for sure, but what we do know is that this amount of money was significant to her either from a financial standpoint and or from a sentimental standpoint, and she was consumed with finding this piece of coin. And the houses in those days, usually the flooring was, was, uh, was made up of, of rocks, and not necessarily, I mean, they were somewhat smooth, but they had these cracks between them. They didn't fit together perfectly. And in fact, archaeologists have found uh, in their digs have found that many times that between these rocks that there are still, when they found coins that were, were stuck between these rocks. And so the woman uh, diligently, she swept the house and she got a candle, she lit a candle so she could see. Uh, shadows, of course, at different times during the day, it would be difficult to, to see the floor and to find this. And she searched diligently until she found this coin. And then again, just as the shepherd did, she called together her friends and neighbors and asked them to rejoice with her because she found the, the coin which was lost. So let me point out here is that we started out with the thing that was sought was the, I don't know, dumb sheep, so to speak. And now we have something even less. We have an inanimate object, a coin, which may have some sentimental value and some 
uh, financial value, but again, it's an inanimate object. It's not even, it's not living, breathing, or anything like that. But Jesus uses this as an example of God seeking after a, after a soul that was lost. At the end of this parable, again, he, he says, Likewise, I say unto you, there is a joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. So these first two parables were relatively simple. They were something that the, uh, the average person that he was talking to here could understand. It doesn't seem to have a deep uh, theological depth. But now he's going to go on. And he's going to speak, I believe, more directly to some of the other people that were there. Although this will also, uh, will also be easily understood by the, the common people that he was speaking to as well. So he sets up the story about a man that has two sons, a younger and an older son. And we know, of course, in uh, biblical times that the older son got more of the, the inheritance. If we go back to Deuteronomy, I believe, uh, approximately two-thirds of the inheritance automatically went to the older son in general. And so the younger son would inherit a, a smaller portion, usually. And the younger son comes to the father, and he says, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me, and he divideth unto them his living. So if we go back from a cultural perspective, this was a very shameful thing to do. Because the inheritance was only officially turned over on the father's death, although the father could, the father could cede some control before then, um, the official transfer of the inheritance, of course, took place at his death. The younger son was essentially saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me my, give me my money. And the father, in spite of this shameful request, the father uh, willingly gave him the, the, the property or the money, and he... He uh, took the money, and it says that he went, the younger son uh, went and journeyed to a far country and wasted his substance with riotous living. So what is riotous living? If we look a little deeper at this, if we look at that, um, we will see some accusations thrown by the older brother when he gets back. But the essence of this means that he was a, a spendthrift and he tended to use this money for uh, luxuries. It does not necessarily say that, as the older brother implied later, that he, he spent this on, quote, harlots, prostitutes, 
or necessarily used it in an extremely sinful way, but he did lose, spent all his money. And after he spent all, a famine arose in the land, and he was out of money, so he had to do something. So what did he do? He went to a citizen of that country. Again, undoubtedly, these are Gentiles that he's dealing with. And he was sent to the field to feed the swine. So some people think that, you know, the, the Gentile here really, really didn't even want him working for him, but he figured if he offered to, to send him to the swine, to, to feed the swine, which, of course, the Jews felt was an unclean animal, and looked down upon those, anybody that would, obviously, according to the law, they weren't supposed to eat the, the pork, but also the Jews looked down on those that uh, were, were uh, swine herders. So he went to feed the swine, and the husk that the swine, that uh, they fed the swine with, the carob, uh, he wanted to eat this because he had no other food. So he was demoted here from living this life of luxury to eating the food for the swine. And then it says, and when he came to himself... So he found himself in this situation, and he seems to have this sudden, uh, this sudden eureka moment where he starts thinking about, hey, maybe there's a better plan than this. And he said, my hired servants of my father's house, they have plenty of bread. Not only do they have plenty of bread to eat, but they have more than enough to spare. They're well paid. And yet, here I am perishing with hunger. So what if I go back to my father and I say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. So one of the conflicts that I found about this is that, I mean, generally we, we, we think, well, here, the, the son, you know, he realized suddenly how good he had in his father's house, and he thought... Uh, he thought, well, I could go back and uh, repent. And we see this, we see this as the beginning. We, we traditionally see this as the beginning of his, his repentance and seeing that you know, he's come to a point in his life, a low point in his life, and his only option is to repent. Uh, some people don't see it that way. Uh, some people see it as that... Uh, here, he's thinking, he didn't say he wanted to be one of his father's slaves. He says he wants to be one of his hired servants. So one of the things that's potentially hanging over his head here is that uh, the Jews had this uh, cutting off, or I'm going to call it a shunning service, where if uh, someone in your family did somewhat, something that was considered shameful, they would hold this service and basically dis, disown you. So a common use of this service might be if someone uh, married outside of the Jewish faith, married a Gentile, or 
in this case, uh, losing all your money, going and losing all your money to the Gentiles, that was, uh, that was potentially a, a use of this service too. So uh, he got out of town fast. If he comes back to town, then he might be shamed in this type of, of service where a, a uh, clay pot is filled with, with uh, some type of fruits or nuts and is broken at their feet and the town comes together and they basically agree that this person is done shameful and they should be, they should be in a sense, uh, shunned. But there's a way to overcome that shunning. There's a way to regain your honor. And that, of course, would be to re-earn your money and to pay back, uh, bring back this, this amount of money that he had lost to, to, uh, to regain this, the uh, inheritance that he had. So some people say that this real, the real idea here was not very his... Uh, his uh, was not really a very true repentance, but he had this idea if he became a hired servant or if he became an employee of his father that he could earn this money back and that he could regain his status through overcoming this shame, through reachieving the honor that he had before. Sounds a bit like works, right? Salvation by works. But what happened? So the son arose, and he came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, and the great way off here is the same word far away as when he went to the far country, his father saw him, and had compassion, and ran. The father was looking for his son's return. He saw him coming a long way off. He knew what the son looked like. He knew the way he walked. He could tell from a far, a long way away that this was his son coming. And... Some commentators feel that the reason the father ran out to greet the son, or one of the, the reasons was, is that by running out and embracing the son and forgiving the son, he could head off this shunning ceremony. So in fact, that is exactly what the father did. Number one, he ran to the son. Okay, in the Middle East, as a patriarch of your family, you are supposed to have more um, dignity than to run. You are also not supposed to uh, show your bare thighs, which of course, if you were wearing the traditional robe and you gird up your loins, most likely you're going to show your thighs when you run. So this is a very shameful act of the from, the for the, from the father's perspective to go out and to run out to meet his son. Not only that, he's running out to meet this son that has brought uh, disrespect on the father, on the fam family. But the father goes out, runs out to meet him, 
and according to some, he heads off this, this, whole shunning, this whole shunning ceremony by instead calling all the neighbors together and holding this feast, that he has taken this shunning ceremony and he has turned it into this magnificent feast where the whole town has come together, and instead of shunning the sun, they are rejoicing that the sun has come back. So the son tries to talk to the father. The son says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. So at this point, the son starts to rehearse his speech, that he's, or to say his speech that he's already rehearsed, and the father comes, and uh, we don't know if he interrupted him or, or if the, uh, why he didn't finish it. Um, the fact is, we don't know the son's heart, and we don't, know, we don't know if, when he started out, if he was truly repentant, if he was repentant now or not, or how he felt in his heart. But we know that the father embraced him. He killed the fatted cow, the fatted calf, and they began to eat and be married. And the reason the father gave was because his son was dead, but is now alive again. He was lost, and he's found, and they began to be merry. So if you were a person listening to this story, you would have been, uh, you would have been stunned here at each of these different turns of events. You would have been stunned that, you know, the young man had the, had the audacity to ask for his inheritance and to imply that he wanted his father dead. You would have been stunned that the father came running to meet him and welcomed him with this feast and you would have been uh, stunned, perhaps, that the, uh, the young man was not, was not held accountable for his, uh, for his deeds. So that could be the end of the story, but it's not. Jesus goes on, and he says... Uh, now the elder son was in the field, out working in the field, sweating away in the field probably. And he came and drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing. The whole town's at the house celebrating with music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. And the servant told him, your brother's come, and your father's killed the fatted calf. And a fatted calf fell at about 200 people, so you've got to imagine they had a, had a lot of people there. And uh, your father killed the fatted calf because the younger son was received safe and sound. Now we imagine after starving in the fields that, uh, that physically uh, the younger son was probably not in that good a shape. So in some ways, this safe and sound here implies a spiritual soundness and not necessarily a physical soundness. And the older brother was angry, and he wouldn't go to the party. Therefore, the father came out 
and entreated him. So generally from a family perspective, as the older brother, he would have been expected to be there and kind of helping, you know, he would have, uh, you know, helping the, the father here, uh, you know, greet the guests, uh, administer the party, and yet he's off, uh, off pouting. So the father comes to him, and he starts in on the father. Lo, I've served you for many years. I've never transgressed your commandment at any time. I've always done what you wanted me to do. I've always been a good, good kid and all that kind of stuff. And yet you never made a party for me that I could be merry with my friends. So evidently his friends weren't at the party. But as soon as you're... This, thy son, has come, not, not my brother. Thy son has come, which devoured thy living with harlots. Thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. Again, this is an aspersion that's not necessarily backed up by the, the original account of what the younger son, son did. And so notice he's distancing him. He's not, not calling him his brother. And again, he's making accusations that he probably has no... Uh, does not know whether they're true or not. And the father says to him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should be, make merry and be glad, for this thy brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. So the father's dealing here with one more shameful thing. He's got this other son standing here that won't come and be part of the, be part of the party, right? And it'd be nice if we had a nice ending to this parable. Some people maybe thought it'd be nice just to have an ending, period. But of course, we're left hanging here. What did the older son do? And we don't know. And if we go and we look at this parable and we say, well, who was Jesus talking to and who was the younger son and who was the older son? Well, we have these two different groups that Jesus has been talking to. We have the publicans and sinners and we have the Pharisees. So obviously here, the younger son fits in with the publicans and sinners. Those that have sinned, those that have have went out into the world and are not following the Father's commandments. And then we have the older son representing the Pharisees and the scribes that are following the letter of the law, and yet something's missing. So if we look at all three of these parables, we see God searching after the lost sheep. We see God searching for the lost coin. We see God searching for the prodigal son. And we see God searching for the older son.
So I don't know where you stand today, but uh, most of us, most of us have been in one of those categories. We may have been the lost sheep that was hurt, that we weren't, we we weren't uh, weren't smart enough to uh, to stay away from the treacherous landscape, and Jesus came, and uh, perhaps through no fault of our own, we were lost out in the wilderness, and Jesus came and rescued us. Perhaps we're the coin. We had no, no knowledge of God. We had no knowledge that he was even seeking for us. We didn't even know we were lost. And yet, he came and looked for us. He came and found us and drew us in. Perhaps you're the younger son. Perhaps you went out into the world and you spent your money in riotous living, whatever that means. And suddenly one day you figured out that if you came back to God, that, you know, even if you were a lowly servant in his house, you would have it much better than you have it out in the world. Or maybe, God forbid, you were the older son. The son that grew up trying to be obedient to God, but was working, was trying to, trying to achieve his eternal salvation through obeying God, but not having a relationship with God. By following the commandments, but not having a heart for the commandments. Because God is a spirit, and he wants the people to worship him in spirit and in truth. So following the commandments isn't enough. God wants your spirit. God wants your soul. God wants you to have a relationship with him. And God is willing to go to shameful, a shameful extent to get that. We talked about in our Wednesday Bible class, our Wednesday Bible class study several months ago, about how God is a pursuing God. If we look at these, look at these parables that Jesus see, told, we see that through and through, each one of these. God is a pursuing God. He's pursuing people whether they want to believe him or not. He is seeking after them. And he's willing to do whatever it takes to reach people. Romans 12.2 says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. Jesus took our shame, the shame that we should feel, the shame that we should feel because we disobeyed God, the shame that we should feel because we're serving God and we're not serving him out of our 
with our whole heart. The shame that each of us has in our lives that we, God, Jesus has taken that shame, bore it on the cross, and took it upon himself. Finally, we know that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, but he's long-suffering and not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And the thing is, sometimes we make repentance. From a human perspective, we look at it and we say repentance is difficult. But if we look at the parables that Jesus saw, that Jesus told today, God was actively seeking. God is coming after you. God does not make repentance hard. What's hard is yielding ourselves to God. What's hard is letting God bear our shame instead of trying to earn back our honor. So we had a great story today, a great uh, lesson today in the Bible class about Jethro, how he earned Jethro. Jethro.